The previous shear I discussed, the previous two shearim, I discussed the use of the human body to capture the experience of Talmatara, the various forms of Talmatara, and um, different components of how a person studies Torah. Similarly, just as the human body was seen as a as possessing or containing a list of metaphors for Torah study, and, and obviously very, very intimately because the person is involved in Torah study and his body is involved, so different parts, different angles of Torah study are associated with different parts of the human body. In a similar vein, the landscape which human beings live was also seen as replete with elements that captured and that symbolized Torah study. And I'd like to discuss some of those aspects of the natural landscape and what elements of Torah they reflected or symbolized. So probably the most direct source is a medrash in the beginning of Sefer and Parshas Bamidbar. Remember the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar, Vayidaber Hashem El Moshe Bamidbar Sinai. So it emphasizes the delivery of the Torah in the desert, a emphasis which is repeated in Parshas Chukas. Parshas Chukas contains the, the, the song of Am Yisrael after 40 years, which is parallel to the Az Yashir and almost restarts Jewish history. Az Yashir Yisrael, Ali Be'er Anula. And one of the phrases in that Shira or Shir is Mimid Bar Matana. And Chazal see this as a reference to the Torah, which was given in the desert, the gift of the desert, Mimidbar Matar. But anyway, the Medrash in the beginning of Bamidbar writes as follows Mikan Shanu Chachamim Begimel Dvarim Nitnahatara. Torah was delivered with three accompanying natural elements, the three parts to the ambience or the environment within which Torah was delivered. Be'esh, through fire, Bamayim, through water. Uva Midbar, and in a desert. So even though the Pasuk in the beginning of Bamidbar discusses the desert, the Medrash elaborates and expands and references the fire, the water, and the desert. The Medrash continues, Ba'ishminayin, how do we know the Torah was delivered with fire? Quotes the Pasuk in Yisrael, Bahar Sinai, Ashan Kulo. How do we know Torah was delivered with water? So this is a little bit more difficult, doesn't appear in the Torah per se. But it does appear in Devarah's Shira, in Shoftim Parakeh. And Devarah is describing Har Sinai, and she describes this copious explosion of water, Gam Shamayim Natfu, the heavens burst forth, Gam Avim Natfu Mayim, the clouds themselves poured forth water. The Rambam actually writes in one location, this is not just a metaphor or imaginative, but it's actually raining in Har Sinai, something which we don't often think about. What, was the we- what were the weather conditions? What was the weather like it has seen, according to the Rambam, it was raining, based on this section in Shelf So whether it was actual rain or some other water activity, but it's clearly water played a central feature in the delivery of Torah on Vav Sivan. The third element was, of course, the Torah was delivered in the Midbar, by Midbar Minayin, by Debar Hashem on Moshe Ben Bar Sinai, quoting this first passage in the beginning of Sefer by Midbar. 
Now the Medrash actually asks, Why was Torah delivered through these three mediums, these three media? So this Medrash tries to find the common ground between fire, water, and a desert. Water, fire, desert. Desert is a unoccupied, untilled terrain. They're all freely available. No one has to pay for water. Even unfortunately, there's a, there's a water droughts now in Eretz Israel, and the water prices are rising. It's creating um, inconvenience and maybe even uh, national vulnerability. But in general, water is seen as something which is freely available. Certainly, fire is freely available, and a desert is an area that no man uh, owns or occupies and prevents others from trespassing or traversing. And these three together commonly highlight that Torah is meant to be delivered freely, not meant to be something that people pay for. And this leads, of course, to many questions in the modern context. One question is the the role of a salaried rebbe. Can a rebbe receive a salary from teaching Torah? If you take this matter literally, then Torah has to be delivered chinam, freely. So at least when it comes to a Rebbe, some say that the Rebbe can at least get paid for the Shar Batala, that he's not being involved in other professions that he may be pursuing, or in other aspects of a Rebbe's job beyond just teaching Torah personal development and guidance and moral improvement, etc. But the larger question could be the concept of a Kolo. Can a person be paid to study Torah? And many people, of course, invoke the Rambam Shita, the Rambam felt that a person should not be paid to teach or to study Torah. And those who are supportive of a kolo system, either a kolo system as a stage in a person's development, or in some cultures a kolo system as a terminus, as in goal unto itself, said that the Rambam lived in a different era. Rambam lived in an era where people had the stamina and the drive and the ability to study Torah without being paid for it. But in our context, we have to pay people to study Torah. And of course, is a well-known, uh, fiery debate today about the place and value of Kolal as a perpetual pursuit, but comes in many respects from this medrash. But the role of fire and of water and of desert far, far surpasses just this one element of free, freely available, no price being paid or demanded. And if we take an inspected look at each of these components, we may discover that each of them on their own signifies certain aspects crucial to the experience of Talmudar. So the first element, or the first component, the first medium, the Medrash lists is the medium of Asia, fire. And it quotes uh, the Pasuk Har Sinai Ashan Kulo, but for the same price, the Medrash could have quoted the Pasuk Mimino Eish Das Lamo and Vizot Sabracha. It could have quoted that Pasuk, which also talks about Torah being delivered by the right hand of Hashem, and that's obviously a metaphoric statement, Mimi know from the right of Hashem, Eish Das Lamo, the fire of his religion, <coughs> excuse me, the fire, <coughs> excuse me, of his law, was delivered to Am Yisrael. And also a medrash in Pekude, in which Kodesh Baruch Hu at the Brisbane Abisarim demonstrated or foreshadowed to Avram all the various aspects that he would deliver to Avram's descendants. And according to the medrash, when Kodesh Baruch Hu showed Avram a lapid Eish, a pillar of fire, Here's referring to Torah. In that language of the Medrash Tanhuman, Parshat Pekudeh, Torah Lapid Eish, Mimino Eish Daslamo. So there are, of course, another Pasuk in Yisro, that they saw the fire and they saw the sounds and the Lapidim. 
Either way, there are plenty of psukim in the Torah, whether they appear in Parshas Yisro, in Parshas Vesos Abracha, they appear in, in Parshas Lach Lecha during the Brisbane Ab Abbasarim, which associate Torah with fire. The question is, what aspect of Talmud Torah does this fire image seek to convey? I think the primary aspect is that Torah is something different. It's transcendent. As much as Torah is conquered, I talked about this in some of the previous year, and by the human mind and the intellect, it remains something, uses the word mystery, not because it's something unknowable, but unencompassable. It can't be encompassed totally. It's something which is heavenly, which is transcendent, which is divine. Fire is not, uh, the at least obviously scientifically we know how fire operates, but fire is not uh, something that is uh, is at least um, experientially seen as something normal, so to speak, the normal interaction of chemicals or material. And that's why when HaKadosh Baruch Hu first appears to motion, the snake appears to him through a fire. In that case, it's a fire that's even more mysterious because it doesn't even consume the base. But it's something which captures the method of Shem's delivering Moshe that I'm not something you can understand easily. Hasnein and Ukal. Fire is not something which is naturally part of Sheshus Yimebreshus. Yishalmi says that we recite the bracha Barim Ariha Eish on Matzei Shabbos because that's when HaKadosh Baruch Hu traditionally delivered fire to Adam Arishon. So obviously we know how fire works. It's not magic. It's not unknown. But it's somehow, at least in, from an emotive or existential standpoint, it's seen as something else and other. We don't fully understand how the sun, which is a ball of fire, constantly replenishes itself. So fire carries that sense of otherness. So, for example, the Medrash very often says that the Torah was given as black fire written on type of white fire. So instead of it being written on pieces of parchment with ink or dio, it was fire on top of fire, Based on this Pasuk, Eish Das Lamos, in the language of the Madrash, is Amr of Shimon ben Lakish. Kara shenasana kadosh baruchu, haisa ora shel Eish levana, uksuva be'esh shechora. The or, the parchment, was white fire, and the text, the actual characters, were written with black fire. He Eish, Kara was fire, the chatsuva me'esh, and it was yun from fire. The he muchlelas be'esh, and it was circled or encompassed by fire, then and delivered with fire. So a sense of some magical, otherworldly, celestial form of writing is captured not just by the Pasuk and Kititza, but by the medium of the writing being fire. It's another medrash that appears several times in Chazal, that Torah is nimshala ba'esh, who can actually touch fire, so right off the bat, something that can't be treated as normal, in this case not because the experience is seen as so unique, but because it's hot and you can't just uh, treat it um, casually. But the marriage continues. Have the Omer Yisrael. Am Yisrael is the only nation, according to this marriage, that's capable of touching this fiery Torah. Tana Mishmedra Bimeir, the Medrash continues. Because Am Yisrael is such a strong and obstinate nation, and therefore only they can handle the incorrigibility, the, the, the heat of Torah. And Amra Kodesh Baruch Hu, Reuyen Halalu She Nitzen Lehem Das Eish. 
these people alone are worthy to receive the religion of fire. The Yibayusema, which is provided as a different opinion, but capturing the same theme, Normally, lo nitna Torah Yisrael, the Torah would not have been delivered to Am Yisrael, which is a very provocative statement. If Am Yisrael would not have the Torah, they'd be so strong, they're such a strong people innately, that they would dominate the world. So delivers Torah to Am Yisrael, as it were, to regulate this unique force, and to steer it, or to channel it to Torah study, for if Am Yisrael had not received the Torah, their force and their power or their potency may have been expressed in some way that may have been very aggressive, and in this case, maybe unwarranted. So it's a very provocative medrash and has many layers to it, many of which I won't discuss at this stage. But this medrash, as well as the previous medrash, both capture the fire as um, uh, conveying the otherness of Torah. It's not a human document, it's a divine document, and the fire captures that. Of course, the simple conveyance of fire is as the Psukim in Yisro and then the subsequent related Psukim in Parshas Veschanan and in Ekev relay is fire is something which causes fear. Of course, is the person to fear rationally. He'll become, he'll be burnt, he'll be injured, his possessions will be burnt, but also there's something very psychological about fire. People who are pyromaniacs are not interested in the immediate empirical effect of fire, but it, it captures something very deep in their psyche, in their soul, and obviously in this case it, it addicts them to fire, but it also is a very scary experience. Fire is something that can elicit great fear out of people. Um, in, in, unfortunately in Jewish history, but in, in general human history, fire was always used as a terror, not just as a means of death. A means of death you can behead someone, a means of death you can hang someone, but when you burn someone at the stake, not only does it create a public experience, but it also creates a, an element of fear and terror, which hopefully in some, for some people acts as a deterrent. At the very least, it's a tool of terror. So Har Sinai was a moment that Kodesh Baruch Hu wanted to instill the fear of Torah and discuss the difference between Torah from Yerush Hashem and Torah based on Avos Hashem in the previous year. And that's why specifically in Devarim, Sefer Devarim, on the eve of Am Yisrael's entry into Eretz Kenan, a land which, at least at this stage, is still saturated with paganism. And paganism is a humanization of God, and uh, an absence of any fear, any distance. Uh, I can actually craft God. It, it, it sees God as very much part of the human experience. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to highlight the transcendence of a monotheistic God of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So the element of fear is greatly, greatly emphasized, far more than is emphasized in the actual narrative in Sefer Shemos. And not just is the fear factor emphasized in Sefer Devarim, but the repetition of the fire, the smoke, the fire, the smoke, that convey that sense of awe and fear at our seat. Of course, the third reason that fire and Torah are associated is not because of the fear that fire creates, but because of the light that fire emits. And Torah is seen as the light that provides radiance, and understanding and the ability to live this life and understand the depths of our reality and of our existence and, and how to live life. So, the Psukim and Paraklamid in Tehillim, Torah is seen as something which enlightens a human being, or very famous Pasuk in Mishle, Ner Mitzvah Ve'or Torah, that, uh, 
Torah is considered or. So these are not specifically associated with a particular medrash, but they're clearly um, associated imageries of Torah with fire. That fire and Torah are associated not just to convey the otherness of Torah, but the fear that a person should feel when approaching Torah, not a fear which is crippling or handicapping, but a fear that reinforces the otherness of Torah, and not just the fear, but the elucidation and illumination of life which Torah enables. The second ingredient of that medrash which accompany the delivery of Torah is, of course, Mayim. And here, Chazal have a very, very extensive system of imagery connecting Torah with Mayim, but you clearly have to divide them into two. Some of Chazal's imageries are based on, or images, are based on water as something you drink or eat to provide basic sustenance in life. Not the water of an ocean or of a river or of rain. The water in your cup, the water in your glass, the water in your sister. And that's not necessarily the topic of this year. Maybe a different year we'll discuss the different foodstuffs associated with Torah. Bread, water, wine, oil. But this year is describing the basic natural elements associated with Torah. And water also, but not as uh, liquid, not as a bottled uh, mineral water, but oceans and rivers and uh, seas and uh, rainfall. So Chazal have five or six associations with water as a natural element. So, for example, in a Medrash, Chazal speak, The expanse, the unlimited expanse of Torah, the limitlessness of Torah. A person looks at an ocean. Obviously, we know that oceans are bounded, but just optically, you feel like it never ends. And that's why, classically, the phrase Yam Shel Torah is employed specifically to relate to the study of Torah Shabbat Pesh. It's such an overwhelming force, such an indomitable uh, unit of, of of Torah study. You can't control it. You can't contain it. person drowns in studying even one surya. And this matter is called Tapasuk in Eov, Arucham Meritz Midah, Yam, that Torah, at least the way Chazal take this Pasuk in Eov Yudalaf, is broader than the earth, and more expansive than the seas. So this is one association with water. Um, a second association with water. Water descends from heaven. In this case, the imagery associated with water flowing from Shemayim is very much parallel to the Asian imagery. It's something other, it's something celestial water, and water is something which doesn't create that that um, viscous sense of otherness. You touch water, you drink water, you swim in water, you clean with water. It's far, far more utilized and more familiar, more common, but ultimately the source of water is heavenly, something which, again, we're in the modern context a little bit removed from, less so in Eretz Yisrael, because we're so dependent on rainfall, but for us, water doesn't come from heaven. It comes from the tap. It comes from the faucet, but ultimately the images are associated with the real source of water. Um, another imagery of Chazal, very interesting, intriguing one. Water is seen as something that covers the the erva of the yam. It's an interesting metaphor. Does it mean the erva of the yam, the underbelly of the sea, the abyss? It's like a bottom to the sea that water covers. You know, normally think in those terms. Water doesn't cover any erva. There's the seabed, and, and there's life, and there's sediment, and 
and then there's water on top of it. What does it mean that water covers the seabed? But at least Chazal saw it that way. There's a coverage of the erva of the yam. It quotes the Pasuk in Yeshaya, Parak Yud Aleph, Kamayim, Layam Mechaseh. The, the water of the ocean covers the yam, covers the dry bed of the ocean. Tara has the ability to conceal an erva. We hope that Kodesh Baruch Hu's love for us will not cover but compensate. Kodesh Baruch Hu will look aside or overlook our failings because he loves us so much and at least according to this medish that love can be induced by spirited Torah study, by sustained Torah study. Which is an interesting question about truth in general. When we ask the Kodesh Baruch Hu not just to forgive or to atone our sins, but to cover our failures with love. When you love someone, you overlook, you accept their failures. Even if that person can't overcome them, you're able to bypass them. And we ask that of the Kodesh Baruch Hu, in truth in general, in this passage in Mishlei, they are called Pshaim as part of the Tzvilon Yom Kippur. But according to this Medrash, Torah has that unique ability to catalyze that coverage or that compensation or that overlooking in the same way that the waters of the ocean cover the air of the ocean. Again, a very intriguing metaphor. So various different effects of natural water are seen as emblematic or symptomatic of Torah study, the vastness of the ocean, the heavenly source of water, the coverage of the seabed, the compensation almost of the open, revealed seabed covered by water, who compensates for Achatayim with his love that Torah induces. Um, another imagery associated with water, and this may lead us into the next imagery. Um, Torah begins in heaven, as I mentioned before, but it descends to the earth. And not only does it begin in heaven, but it descends to the earth, but the ultimate descent of waters from high places to low places, whether it's at a planetary level where water melts in the polar ice caps and drifts towards the seas, towards the respective equators, or whether it's in a more local setting where water begins in mountainous areas as, as snow or ice or water collection, and it drains off of mountains, and the fury and force of water as it makes its way, it could carve uh, canyons, it can carve its way through mountains, through rock, or through hills. So it starts at high places, whether in, in the stratospheric sense, it starts in the heaven, or just in the geological sense of our earth, but either way it descends to low places. Similarly, true Torah knowledge can only cohere or can only reside in someone that's humble and meek and modest. This is already a moral statement about the moral traits necessary to succeed in Torah study and the known association between Torah and humility. So water indicates and reaffirms, just like water um, migrates to low places, similarly Torah will migrate to people of low and unassuming and unpretentious spirit. And this serves as a good transition into that third imagery, which the Medrash talked about, the imagery of a desert. Um, so what does a desert convey? So one of the issues the desert conveyed, and this was already latent in the Medrash in Bamidbar, is the desert is free. But there are really two others. One is the humility of a desert. The Gemara talks about the person who wants to study Torah and succeed in Torah study has to 
landscape himself into a desert, Shakol Dashinbo. Everyone tramples on him. Unlike um, a garden or unlike a field of wheat in which trespasses aren't allowed, the midbar, everyone can trespass, everyone can enter. The person wants to succeed in Torah study has to turn himself into a desert again without accepting victimization or abuse, but just not to be haughty and, and self-centered and demanding and assertive, but to be forgiving and, and forbearing and tolerant of other people. Like a midbar, so to speak, tolerates the trespass of any who want to traverse it. So in this case, both the midbar and water highlight another common theme, not just the common theme of midbar, mayim, and esh. The Torah is free, or should be free, but a second issue of midbar and mayim, that a person has to be humble in order to achieve true Torah success. But there really are two other elements that the midbar conveys. Number one, the Medrash says, person who succeeds has to make himself like a midbar hefker, or in other Lashonas of the Medrash has to be mafli galeha. And I mentioned this in earlier, she earned that you can't study Torah and succeed at Torah study in a casual, calm, moderate fashion, but Torah pursuit has to be relentless and tenacious and perseverant and extraordinary because you're trying to tackle HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will, and that's not something which relaxed human effort will succeed at. The desert is an image of something which is harsh and beyond the civility of human routine. It's something which is harsh and extreme and radical. If a person wants to succeed in Torah, he has to produce the same prodigious effort. This is the third imagery associated with the desert. Maflik atzmo aleha. And then finally, Chazal speak about a fourth reason Torah is delivered in the desert because it belongs to no one. And not just in the sense that you shouldn't be paid to deliver Torah in the ideal world, but Torah shouldn't be seen as proprietary. In the language of Chazal, if it were delivered in Eretz Yisrael, where you might think it should be delivered, I mean, after all, it's a Torah, and it's wedded to Am Yisrael's history, and to the land of Israel, and the mitzvahs of Eretz Yisrael, and lo and behold, not only is it not delivered in Eretz Yisrael, it's not even delivered in civilization. It's delivered in a barren desert. So the Medrash says, Chazal say that they, Hashem was worried, so to speak, that his Torah would be delivered in the chelak, in the portion of a particular tribe. That tribe would claim proprietary rights. The Torah was delivered in our, in our terrain, and therefore we have unique rights and unique says about the shape of Torah. And um, so often we hear that claim, this is the derech to learn, and this is the approach to study, and this is the hashkafa, and this is the derech emes, and Chazal didn't view it that way, and, and the infinity of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the infinity of Torah demands that there be multiple ways to approach HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as long as all those multiple ways cohere within a certain unified set of standards of Torah, of mitzvahs, of Shreya Salacha, of Rakhavachos Rabbanim, etc., etc., but the delivery of Torah in the desert was meant to convey the lack of ownership or the lack of monopoly in Torah experience. So these are the three elements of nature which the Medrash highlights, fire, water, and desert, and the imageries which are associated with the three. In the next year, I hope to talk about an element which is not described or discussed by that Medrash, but is, of course, noted by many, many psukim throughout Tanakh, the aspect of a tree. Eitz Chaim Hiramachazikim, by the Torah is compared to a tree. Why is Torah compared to a tree? So, Hashem will discuss this in another year.